0: Lucky miracle. In the American League Baseball today, the Yankees shut out Cleveland 4 to nothing, and tonight the Mets are leading the Cardinals 5-3 to three in the seventh inning. New York Stock Exchange closed up sharply today after a seesaw day in which the prices fluctuated widely in moderately active trading. Sales, 14,890,000 shares. The Gainers outnumbering losers, 777 to 647. 361 issues unchanged. Dow Jones Industrials up 6.92. Transportation up. utilities up .54, price of an average share on the big board up 17 cents. On the American Exchange, sales were 3,172,000 shares, gainers outnumbering losers, 426 to 380, 365 issues unchanged, Amex index closed up .03. WOR, weather watch update for New York City and vicinity, clear and cold tonight, lows in the mid-30s, mostly sunny tomorrow, highs around 50 Cold with a chance of a few snow flurries late tomorrow night and early Friday. Lows in the low 30s, clearing on Friday, highs in the 40s. Current temperature, 38 degrees, humidity 44%. Winds northwest, 11 miles an hour, gusting to 24, barometer 29.89 inches and rising. That's the latest from the WOR newsroom, Lester Smith reporting. Over WOR New York, your station for news as it happens. I'll be back with all the late news again at 11, and now Gene Shepard.
1: The idea of W. C. Fields eating fritos. is grotesque. <laughs> ever seen that commercial? Only a C. see Fritos, yeah. I mean, that's one of the major grotesqueries of our time. It's like uh, picturing W. C. Fields drinking a diet tab. Only a C. Fields, and a little plants of tab with my fritos. I mean, where will it ever end, for God's sakes? Bring it up, please, will you, Bill, please? can't leave the slobs off the hook, bring it up there. Don't you feel kind of good once in a while, deep down in your gut, that you are a slob? I mean, the slob world is so full of passion and, and uh, slob delights, sitting there stuffing your face with cheeseburgers and going to the Dairy Queen and hanging around the Great Easter. You know, you know it's just a... It's just a... <laughs> the life of a peasant has always been rich and
0: full.
1: You ever think in terms of the slob being the modern-day peasant? <laughs> That's tonight's Salute to Jersey. Uh, yes, uh, well, uh, of course. I'm not... I, I, no value judgment involved. I, I never make a value judgment, of course. Uh, but uh, I... Uh, I yeah, who was it who once said uh, the world... God must have loved the slobs. He made so many of them. Uh, no, no, he didn't say that, did he? No, no. No, that wasn't God. That was that was Earl Wilson. That was a quote from his column. Or was it Dorothy Kilgallen? Uh, I, I don't know whose literary style that is, but, you know, speaking of literary styles, uh, uh, tonight uh, I have a, something uh, I don't often do here. I have a letter here. It says uh, Shepard. Uh, you know, it starts right out there. Uh, shepherd. As this letter concerns your show about insomnia a few nights ago I will make it short and avoid trying to be humorous since I'm not a professional (laughs) Yes, I can see I was never in the Army, but after listening to you for the past several years I feel as though I have been I'll take your word for it about Army lectures Putting you to sleep and being a fantastic cure for insomnia Your show did a good job that night Well, thank you However, I feel you have overlooked the greatest cure for insomnia, much older than any army lecture cure. I will come right to the point. The greatest and most successful cure for insomnia is to recall the church sermons of one's youth. You know, he says, one hour plus of total slumber producing oratory. In my youth, I learned the very difficult art of sleeping hours on end with my eyes wide open. With an apparently interested stare, he says, uh, "Now this is quite true. I might say that this guy hit on something, and I and I have to give full credit to this listener. He's right. He says, uh, he says they were. He says I. He says it bothered me for years. He says you know how people talk about how they can't get to sleep. He says a couple of really, uh, a really authentically recorded sermons from any one of twelve thousand churches played on your stereo." Would be enough to put uh, even the canary to sleep. Well, now, <laughs> now this is not a comment on religion, although it could be taken as that. It is primarily a comment on delivery. Oh yes, do you realize that the average Presbyterian minister, if he were given some of the major speeches from Henry the Fourth, would put you to sleep instantly? Now, is that a comment on Shakespeare? Is it a comment on delivery? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I discovered this. This guy is absolutely the true. He's so true that it's that's that it's a a painful recollection that I have in connection with a very. Have you ever done something that was so embarrassing, so completely embarrassing that even at this point, and maybe one hundred and fifty years after the embarrassing event occurred, you still have great difficulty in admitting that it happened. I mean have you ever had that? <laughs> oh listen, I wanna tell you I I've seen some unbelievable moments of that type. I mean where 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 even it was so embarrassing at the time that people didn't even mention it at the time. It was so terrible embarrassing. I I I, uh, I I one time was out on a double date with a guy and I can't even remember the guy's name. It was a guy I knew in high school, briefly. So we'll keep all the innocent types out of it. But this is uh, this happens to be a true story. This is not fiction tonight, Brian. This is the absolute, god's honest, painful truth. But I was out with a with a guy, and the two of us were with these two girls, and we drove, uh, you know, we drove all half, halfway across the city, Chicago, a you know, long drive, and we we got we got to the show we were going to. And we went to the show, right? It was at the Oriental Theater. If you're curious about this kind of movie house, it was this it was fantastic movie house that had a, had an had an imitation sky above it. Have you ever gone into a movie house where they have stars and uh, clouds going by? And, oh, it's fantastic! And, and and since it was it was well known that in Chicago you could go for as long as six or seven months without seeing the sky because of the blast furnace and all all the you know all the steel mills and all that jazz. So people would go to the Oriental Theater just to see the sky. Well, you'd sit there. You had a picture there with a picture. You'd sit there and look up there and watch the clouds go by. Yeah, they had some kind of a technique. I don't know how they did it, but it looked like clouds going by. Do you ever see this there? And and they had stars up there, and there were there were what looked like flights of, of seagulls that were up in the star in the stars and the clouds, and they, and they were hanging. Yeah, it was a fantastic scene. It really looked very real. And you'd sit in this in this gigantic theater. Well, I'll give you a, another idea. How this theater was, you see, the, this is a this is let's put it this way. It was the kind of theater that uh, that when you went into the lobby, it was all brass. you know it's fantastic. Uh, uh, it had these uh, imitation bronze bas reliefs. Uh, it was sort of neo-Greeky, come late uh, uh, third dynasty Egyptian. Was roughly what the architecture was, which. Kind of fitted in great with the South Side of Chicago, and it's very, very exciting. And uh, you'd come into this place and had had uh, had all kinds of colored, purple and green and blue tiles on the on the on the floor of the lobby. Magnificent! I mean, I'm not talking about tiles like in the John. I'm talking about decorative tiles. You know, swans and <laughs> we'd come into this place. See, and, and uh, we'd go there and, uh, to, just to see the place. And in the in the front of the uh, lobby was the, was the box office. Now this was really a true kiosk and it was made out of, apparently carved out of solid bronze and this old lady with gray hair would sit in there and sell tickets at an exorbitant rate and uh, you'd come in there and buy these tickets, you'd move into this place and right in the middle of the lobby to me this has always been a, a, the epitome of the movie world they had a, a, a pool and it was it was lined with, with deep royal purple uh, glazed tiles, it just look beautiful. It's a great big pool, and they have water in it. And in the water were about 400 great big fat mean-looking goldfish. You ever go into a movie that had an actual pool in it? They had a goldfish swimming around there, and uh, <laughs> and there were a couple of couple of swans. They actually had swans in there. And the swans are moving around in this place, and and people would come crowding in there. And being South Chicago, that was not enough, you see, because uh, naturally, as I say, the slob is always with us, ever-present. And uh, to those of you who think that uh, that ecological uh, debauchery is a new thing, I can only say that here was this pool in the in the lobby of the Oriental Theater. It had all these uh, great-looking goldfish swimming around in it, and it had water, see, because the goldfish wouldn't work it. They couldn't hack it without the water. See, there was water in there, and there was also these swans But we'd go in and we'd look in the goldfish. See, everybody would wait because you had to wait till the end of the second feature before they let you in. You know, these purple ropes and all that jazz. We're standing there. We're looking at the swans. And the entire water was covered with Wrigley gum wrappers. (laughs) <laughs> Wrigley gum wrappers and the uh, old uh, butt ends of Baby Ruth candy bars, and uh, you'd see the uh, goldfish swimming around there, looking at the Baby Ruth candy bars, and it, it just sort of was a, the whole thing was kind of a cross section of the whole movie world. On one end, you see these these elegant swans, and they're swimming through a sea of spearmint wrappers. I mean, you know, it kind of captured the whole the whole uh, the whole mood. You know, the the profane and the the sublime all in one giant pool. There it was, you know. <laughs> and and uh, hardly anybody has recorded this type of movie house. And, and incidentally, this movie house was, was like a landmark. It was like 250 years old. Everybody had gone there uh, for, you know, it, was, it must have been built during the late Rudolph Valentino period, you know, when the Moorish architecture was, was a big thing in movie houses. So we'd go there, and we'd sit in, 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 in the seats way in the back, and we'd look up at the sky. To see the clouds, and to see these birds flying. But I mean, please, uh, I I have a feeling that anybody who believes in Jonathan Livingston Seagull also believes that Snoopy really was a World War One pilot. Uh, there's a certain kind. Of, oh, would I love to see what Dorothy Parker would say about Jonathan Livingston Seagull? You know, you know what she said about Winnie the Pooh, don't you? You don't? Know, that's a famous line of uh, her. One of her most famous lines. When asked about whether she liked Winnie the Pooh, she says, it makes me want to flow up. It's spelled (laughs) F-W-O-W. Every time I think of Jonathan Livingston Seagull, I think of the Seagull that bombed me uh, at uh, Asbury Park one day when I was walking along the boardwalk with my new sport coat. Old Jonathan was practicing spot precision bombing, and he got me from about 5,000 yards... And I want to tell you, he got me with about a 16-pound wad that landed right on my shoulder while I was talking to an elderly lady with blue hair. It was a very embarrassing moment because it splattered all over her rimless glasses. But, uh, you know, uh, apparently Jonathan of the story doesn't eat, which is interesting. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we we went to this movie house. Now, I don't know, uh, you know, I really don't know why I'm telling you this because... uh, we all know that uh, since we are all of us in one way or another wallowing in the slob world, and uh, it's, it's really our culture, we have to accept it, that uh, me and this guy went to this movie house this day, See, well, it's night, you got the scene, right? I, I, I really don't, I don't want to tell you this embarrassing moment because it may embarrass some of you. And uh, I, I'll tell you this right away, uh, it's in bad taste invariably the best embarrassing moments are. And let's face another thing. Life itself is in bad taste. I mean, uh, anyone who, who looks at life with a cold, unprejudiced, agate eye of truth must realize that life is basically in, 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 in extremely bad taste. Have you felt this, Bill, or have you felt all along it's been your life that's been in <laughs> remarkably bad taste? Or do you think that George Plimpton lives on another plane of existence, you know, sipping at daffodils in the morning, and uh, his his suits are woven upon him by uh, tiny fairy tailors, you know, who come down with the, uh, you know, <laughs> and his pen is dipped in the in the uh, you, you kind of like this, huh? his pen is dipped in the in the elegant uh, nectar of truth. Whereas you fool around with that lousy ballpoint that keeps squirting purple ink on your knees, right? Well, so uh, life has to be that way. And among other things in life, please, hand upon the money button, please. Among other things in life, let's hit you right in the face with a with a commercial while you're still quivering. Hit him. Come on, please, Bill.
0: The excitement of Grand Prix, the thrill of downshifting on an open road. New York in the spring at the International Auto Show. The latest economy, luxury, family, and sports cars from England, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Sweden, and Soviet Union, plus select American models, some making world or American debuts, dragsters, customs, classics, antiques, beautiful girls, glamorous fashions, the world's most exciting international auto show, New York Coliseum, now through April 15.
1: Yes, indeed, Imo, the New York Auto Show. Speaking of the French... Uh, for those of you who uh, feel that uh, you do not know enough about French wines to order with any kind of uh, intelligence and uh, feel also that the, the, the vin La France is too expensive, the Alexis Lechin Company selects the finest wines of France and brings them to you in gracious, curvaceous, sexy bottles at a price you can afford. Alexis Lachine enables you to serve fine French wines. Is that we'll have your friends calling you a wine expert. Myself, Pierre, would like to say to you that Alexis Lachine's this month features its superb rosé. Alexis Lachine is a delicate pink wine from the historic, the historic chateau region of Anjou, in La Belle France. And we would like to suggest Alexis Lachine rosé. Remember the name, Alexis Lachine the beautiful French rosé imported by and Vintners of New York, Alexis Lachine.
2: Alexis
1: de Alexis de Alexis de Alexis de Wine! Oh, it's a mercy. I mean, mercy. Mercy. This wine is particularly good for the more elegant gentlemen of Fordham Road. Alexis, uh, this is uh, W.O.R. New York. Yes, you your dingbat station. And uh, we've got a lot of things to do. How about knocking out a few flies tonight? Do you feel like going out and playing catch, huh? Working on your slider? All right, I'm going to take my juice harp in hand, and I will accompany the Mazda commercial, please.
0: My friend bought a Mazda, then he dropped out of time, so he wrote me a letter to tell him his flight. He said, when you're driving, Mazda makes you smile. So smooth and quiet, you go mile after mile. Just an engine goes... But the Mazda goes. You stand on the throttle, the engine comes alive. You fly down the highway in drive. It's built to travel, hour after hour. You just cruise and with rotary power. Piston engine goes. But the Mazda goes. Well, I drove that blessed my soul before I knew it. I was passing on a Don't you Worry about my Mazda getting off the track. i on on cruise through you before I come back. Yes, sir. Just an engine goes.
1: But the Mazda goes. Yeah, it's hard to go wrong with a Mazda. In Stratford, Connecticut, your Mazda dealer is Paul Miller Mazda. And in Yonkers, New York. It's Mazda of Yonkers. I would have used my uh, elegant Japanese, but I feel that uh, that would be playing the scene a little bit too much, don't you? That's a beautiful commercial the Alexis Lachine. Hey, we have a. Uh, what is this? 7 Eleven? It's holding up a sign. of says 7 Eleven. That's a. You know, that's an old. Uh, I hate to use the expression. That's an old crap term. You know about it, don't you? Come on, roll them, man. Roll it. Say,
2: uh. What's this I hear about 7-Eleven store franchises? Call them. I mean, is a 7-Eleven franchise uh, going to make me some money? Call them. You know what I hear? I hear they got something like 4,500 stores around the country. That's a lot of stores. They're the biggest, I guess. Billion-dollar corporation, is that right? Call them. You know what? I hear they got one of the best uh, franchise arrangements going. Huh? Well, you don't need no experience, and they train you... Hey, I wonder what kind of money you, you have to put in. Call them. You know, I heard that uh, most of these 7 of franchises are run by husband and wives. Is that right? Call them. You think maybe they got some 7-Lem uh, store franchises open around here anywhere? Call them. Well, uh, let me ask you this. What's the number? In New York, you call 516-781-2711. In New Jersey, you call 201-843-3006. You got a dime?
1: And that's what I call an elegant delivery. In New Jersey, you call ring a ding a ding 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 a ding a ding 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 a ding 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 a ding la da da ding 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 la la ta 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 I will award a brass pigli with bronze oak leaf pop to any of my fellow victims out there who can identify that majestic piece of national culture that I'm singing. La da La da La da 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 What am I doing? What what is that? No, no, come on now. That's not a hip version of America the Beautiful. What is it? Rig-a-ding, ding-ding, ding-ding. Rig-a-ding, ding-ding, ding-ding. Ha a ding Oh, God. Rig-a-ding, ding-ding, Oh, that's silly. Thing. You, see. you know, it's falling all apart. Rig-a-ding-ding. You know, sp- speaking of life slowly disintegrating, uh, I, I suppose you want me to finish this embarrassing... You notice I'm, I'm being very careful about not finishing so cause of the service because of the disastrous thing that happened at night. Well, we were with these two girls, okay? And uh, actually, the girl that I was with was a girl who worked down in the office. You know how, uh, how there's always a couple of girls that work in the office at school. And, uh, you know, they, they're from some uh, very alien distant class like they're taking uh, home economics or something. I never... I, I just knew this girl. See, she was in the office all the time. So one time I finally got up the guts, they'd ask her for a date. I was always in the office, in and out all the time. Uh, you could always tell how much trouble a kid was in in our school by the amount of time he spent in the office. I was not in the office making inquiries about paying lab fees. I was usually summoned to the office summarily and uh it was always a bad scene and so i got since i did spend quite a bit of time in the waiting room in the office waiting to see the eichmann of our school a man named mr rupp he was the hatchet man see he always used to say yeah whenever 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 you were in real trouble you would be summoned to speak to mr rupp i don't know what else else he did he was always in this little office off of the office and uh, he would sit at his desk, and he had this kindly look. That's the worst part about hatchet men. They they generally have worked hard on having a friendly, kindly, disarming look. And he'd sit there and smile, smoke a pipe. And uh, he'd say, well, now, what seems to be the trouble today? Let's see. Let's see what seems to be the trouble. You've been here before, haven't you? It's good to see you again. Let's see. Let's see, Oh, ha ha, I see little little situation arose in uh Miss McCullough's class mm-hmm <laughs> George
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, 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 well mm-hmm. yes, sir, Miss McCullough, twenty to this note, says that you were fighting in class, mm-hmm. well, I can understand that. Fighting in class. Well, how do you like Miss McCulloch? Nice lady, isn't she? And you're sitting there. See, he's sneaking up on you. I'll tell you what it's roughly like. It's like if a tiger in the jungle sends you an invitation to uh, have a drink with him. And then sits around for a while, and and you both discuss Jim Beam, bourbon. And he's sitting there grinning. He says, well, (laughs) George... Uh, let me hear your side of it. hmm By well, this time, you know, you figure he's your friend. And, uh, the, oh, this is the Worse technique. Uh, this, this is terrible. He says, no, look, you know, I know miss McCullough. She goes off the deep end sometimes, you know, I tell you. Yes, uh, well, you know, she's getting along. And uh, let's hear your side of it. I said, well, <laughs> my first couple of times see, I fell for it. I said, well... You're right about Miss McCullough. You know, I'm sitting there in the back, and and uh, you know this guy Farkas? And uh, say, oh, Farkas, yes, he's been in here several times. Farkas, uh, is he in your class? <laughs> well, you know Farkas. Well, anyway, the next thing you know, he and I are shoving around the back there, and at the, he fell over sideways and and hit the cabinets in the back and knocked over this globe we got there. And, and you know how Miss McCullough is. She got all excited and started to started cry and everything like that. And Farkas got up, and... And uh he tripped over the the desk there and, and uh well, you know, you know, she just hates it bangs so well. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, uh, very interesting story. I can understand that it would happen. I know. that stuff like that happened to me all the time when I was in school. All right, uh, you go back to your home room and uh we'll uh we'll talk to Miss McCollin, straighten it out. Well, the first time I left the office, I felt, well, you know, I, I, I really put it over that old duffer. I felt great, you know, I walked out of there, it was like ten feet tall, so I walked down the office, whew, boy, because it had been bothering me, cause me, and me and uh, Farkas had a slugging match in English, too, that went on for about 19 minutes, and then finally involved about three other kids, you know, we busted a window, and Farkas said, uh, oh, it was a bad scene, so I figured now I'm through with it. Well, I get back to my... Advisory, my home room, and Miss Snyder's sitting there, my advisor, and she just sitting there. She says, "Oh yes, uh, I just uh, received a note from uh, Mister Rupp, and he also called." I said, "Well, yeah, you know, we had a, a talk about the thing that happened there. It's, it's all straightened out. So, oh, uh, it's just you go see Mister Spone. Well, that was. You know, that was... You knew the minute you were told to see Spawn the ball game was over. That meant uh, the next thing, you were on the bus home. Have you ever been suspended? You haven't. Have you, Jerry? Why am I the only... Well, I, I'll never forget the first time I was suspended for three days... And I, and I, I, I got on the bus. You know, at first there was this great rush of enthusiasm for the whole idea of not having to go to school for three days. But <laughs> halfway home on the bus, it began to hit me. <laughs> I was going to explain this, and you know how I tried to do it. I got home. And say, my mother says, "What are you doing home this early?" I said, well, "I didn't
2: feel good. Oh, oh God,
1: my gut. Oh, something wrong with me." She says, "Oh, please." And the, the, she says, "Oh, come on, quick, get into the bedroom. Did you did you see the school news? Yeah. Oh, I'm sick. Oh, oh, oh." And I go tottering into the bedroom, see, and I I flop over on my bed, and she's she's running around getting the axolax and all that stuff, see. And just about the second run into the bathroom, she's running out with cold rags, and i laying on the on the bed, going, oh, oh, I hear in the next room, I hear, "Ah," it's the phone, see, "Ah." Well, you know, I figure it's Mrs. Bruner calling us. So I'm laying there going, oh, oh And I hear my mother pick up on, yes. Mr. Who? Mr. Rupp. Oh. Well, yes, put him on. Oh, God. I'm laying bed. Uh, Mr. Rupp, he did what? He what? He, yes, he's here now. Three days. Then I hear clunk. clunk. Okay. I just got up off the bed, sat on the edge, and I could hear the feet coming. (laughs) You know, I will, I will, uh, I will, let's put it this way, mercifully draw the curtain upon the ensuing scene, which I might add is still today a bone of contention between me and my mother. We just don't mention it. Because, you know, one of the worst things that, that my mother used to say, was Mr. Rupp. I'd say, who? Who? You know, I still was attempting. and A, a kid never gives up. You know, who? Who? It's Mr. Rupp. And you know very well who. And you know what he's calling about, right? Well, Mr. Rupp, why? Still, see, if you learn to admit your guilt early in life, people will tend to be kind to you. Do you agree with that, Bill? I mean, how many times have you driven like 87 miles an hour through a 25-mile-an-hour zone and you see that blue light behind you and you look out at a car and you say, what's the matter? If you simply say, my foot slipped and it was pushing down, I couldn't get it off the accelerator, help! You know, that, that doesn't work either. If you say, look, all right, okay, i done it. You got me. He's inclined to say, look, fella, will you cut it out? You know? But if you say to him, uh, but the officer, I know I wasn't going more than... My car's got a governor on it. It can't go more than 22 miles an hour because I put it in myself. You'll have to find yourself, you know, with, with your hands behind your back. <laughs> You'll have to find them going through the trunk of your car looking for pot. You'll have to find yourself. <laughs> so, you know, to admit your guilt is always a good thing. Well, let's put it this way. It is often a good thing. Sometimes to admit your guilt is only to feed the fires. So you gotta use your sense. Whatever sense you got, you gotta use it. So I, I, I said to my mother, I said, to her, What what, Mr. Ruff? What what do you mean? She says, You know very well what I mean. I said, but what do you mean, Ma? I persisted.
2: She says, You have been expelled for three days. Expelled? Expelled three days. I never thought a son of mine would be Oh, God, here we go. Expel- I says, Mom, what do you mean expelled? Oh, my stuff. She said, You are expelled for three days, and I'll tell you what you're going to do for three days. For three days. You're going to do nothing but, you think you're going to get out of work? You're going to clean the basement for the three days. And after that, you're going to clean the, cl- you're going to clean all the closets out. And then you're going to clean the attic out. Three days, any summer. You're not going to sit around here on your bottom just because you get kicked out of school. And I'll tell you this. And when your father,
1: oh, my father,
2: when your father hears,
1: well, Gone. So I try to atone You see, when you try to atone for guilt So I go down into the basement And the first thing I did was start to clean the basement If I get out the hoses, you know and I'm squirting down the basement floor And I'm, I'm cleaning out the, the furnace I got all the ashes pulled out I'm, I'm down there because, you know The desire to atone for guilt Is very strong in the human can, Yes, atoning for guilt is a curious thing And you, 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 you like to pretend that you're not, uh, you're not that type You're a total amoralist but every one of us atones in one way or another. Do you agree with that, Jerry? You're the only religious man among us, and you must agree. Well, yes, yes, it is true. Do you agree that atonement is, is, is a major problem? And I was not a religious man, I'm telling you. So I'm down in the basement, working away, you know, it's clean in the basement, I'm, dust is flying. And then I suddenly hear coming up the driveway. Wow! Oh, it's the old man's old. Oh, God. I start to clean even harder. I hear him come up the back steps. I hear the door slam. And I hear up there, What? What the hell?
2: What the hell? And a pop, bop.
1: bop. Oh, we will now once again draw the curtain of kindness over the ensuing scene which occurred next to the coal pit. it was once again, I was once again reminded that the old man was stronger than five bulls. I mean, and he must have been one hell of a dropkick artist in his day. He demonstrated it. He caught me on the bounce. And I'll tell you, we had a a go-around down in the basement. there. If you think you've seen anything out of Eugene O'Neill, you know, Long Day's Journey of Tonight... Well, my old man was not like that old man, you know, who kept sitting around taking this from those kids. I mean, I says, but Dad! He says, don't butt, Dad, me! Don't butt, Dad, me! You got
2: kicked out of school! But Dad, don't butt, Dad, me! You got thrown out of school! And what did you get thrown out of school for? I'll tell you, fighting! I don't mind you fighting out in the backyard or fighting in the alley. Or fighting on the way home back in the garage. But you were fighting in the school. Right there. And you got kicked out. Let's see how good you can fight now.
1: Well, it was a very exciting evening. (laughs) And I remember my kid brother cowering under the day bed. when When I was dragged kicking and screaming up the basement steps. And I sat down to eat my... Meatloaf and my red cabbage that night, and it tasted like ashes. Yes, it was atonement. The old man just sat there, you know, shoveling away at his food, and once in a while he'd look at me, just get that withering look. Kicked out of his skull. That's stupid. That's stupid. Oh, you, you see, what bugged him it was not that I was fighting. But I was dumb enough to do it where I could get caught. That's what bugged him. Stupid fighting in class. Stupid. My mother used to say, Well, now let's forget. She was always trying to throw oil upon the troubled waters. Well, now let's forget it and go right ahead. He's learned his lesson. Oh, I'll bet. Look at him sitting there, learned his lesson.
2: And you know what's worse? He won the fight! If he'd get the hell kicked out of him, he would have
1: learned a lesson. Boy, my kid brother is out there in the next room under the daybed whimpering. Because, you see, we had a tendency, as is the case, see, violence spreads. It's like, uh, let's face it, it all started in Vietnam and now the Cambodians are getting it. Pretty soon, you (laughs) know, it's just the way it goes. It's, It's a contagious disease. And a kid is under, he understands this far more than adults understand it. And, and, and he was afraid that, you know, he would come in, sit down, squat down in front of his meatloaf. And look at a funny, don't give me that funny look on your face.
2: What are you grinning about?
1: Well, then, of course, then it would be off. Eh, the whole bit, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, he, he learned early in the game to stay under the daybed because the daybed was so low that nobody could reach him under there. It was one of these, you know, like a Castro that folds out, and it had these iron things on the bottom, and it you had to be no, I would say you couldn't have made it under the bed if you were any anything over 3 foot 7 inches tall, and you couldn't weigh more than 26 pounds. And so he could get under there. He just went under that thing like a cat going under a door. You know, zap, he'd go under. And boy, that would
3: make my old man mad.
1: You couldn't, have you ever had a dog or something that would get under something and you couldn't get him out? Well, my kid brother would spend weeks under the day, and they couldn't get him out. And they'd poke under there with, with, with brooms. <laughs> I'm like, <about>, get out. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this, but <laughs> they'd poke, you know. It's a, you'd hear a whimper under there, that they're trying to get him out of there. Well, uh, <laughs> so nevertheless, there I am, see. So. This, this, uh, this is not the embarrassing moment I was about to tell you about. I don't know. You know so, so I, 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 I had kept going into the office. See, yeah, I was in the office a great deal during a certain period in my, my, uh, my scholastic days. Let's put it that. Oh, one of the worst ones I ever had happen to me that way. Have you ever been actually turned in by a total fink? Have you ever had anybody? It was, that, that I think is one of the most traumatic things in your life to trust somebody and get turned in. Oh, what a talk about a finky thing. Uh, uh, Schwartz and I used to hitchhike to school all the time. And uh, I I must have clocked, I probably in my lifetime, I've clocked 20,000 miles or better hitchhiking. And we used to hitchhike to school. See, the reason we did it was because we were given money. You know, bus fare? Yeah, we would ride the school bus. You had had tickets and all that. Well, we would turn in our tickets at the office (laughs) and collect money for them. And, And instead, we would hitchhike. Well, about once out of every six or seven days, we would simply miss. We wouldn't make it. We'd be like a half an hour late. Well, invariably, what we would do, Schwartz and I had a technique. We would come to school, it was late. You know, we'd like arrive a half an hour late. Well, you don't go into school, that's see, So we we knew that if you went to school, the, the jig was up. So we would go down around the back of the school... ...to this garage. They had a school garage back there, a lot of old cars, you know, trucks and stuff back there. And we would hang around this garage, and there was this, this old guy that was back there. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was just an old garage mechanic, so we'd go back there, and we'd hang around with him say, Well, one day, I'm back there in the garage with this guy and Schwartz, and the two of us are writing a note. I am writing a note to Schwartz's advisor saying that the reason Schwartz couldn't come to school that morning was because his sister was sick and he had to go to Alaska or someplace to get the serum and uh, he couldn't come until noon. See, that way we would go back in school at noon, everything's cool. See, this is about 10 o'clock in the morning, so I'm back there writing this note and Schwartz is writing a note for me. Now, this is the only time in my life we ever worked the fake note bit. I never did it again. Nor had I done it before. Now, this is a common enough bit, you know, writing the fake note. So Schwartz figured, well, if he wrote my note, they wouldn't know my... Hand. You know, they wouldn't know Schwartz. My advisor was a different advisor from Schwartz's. His advisor would not know my handwriting and vice versa. So he writes this, Dear Miss Snyder, the reason Jeannie is late for school today is because his father had a very bad illness last night. And Genie had to go to get the various things we needed for him this morning from the drugstore. I hope you will excuse him. It will not happen again. Signed, Mrs. Shepard, you know. So he writes this down, and I write down the thing about, you know, the dear Miss, his his advisor by there was Miss Emmy Scott. Dear Miss Scott, the reason my son Schwartz is not uh, on time today in school is because his sister was very ill last night. And he had to go... You know, I write this thing out. And uh, and at that point, see, this guy is sitting there and he says... Uh, he's laughing. So he's helping us write the notes and stuff. Well, so I give Schwartz's note. Here, I got my note. Well, we both go up to... It's it's noon now. We have our lunch. We're sitting out there eating our salami sandwiches and stuff and peanut. But Schwartz loved, incidentally, a very curious sandwich, which uh, even at that time I never got the guts to try. And he really ate this. You're going to think I'm making it up. He, honest to God, ate this. He loved it. I don't know whether you've ever tried this because I have, a, I have completely uh, avoided this particular sandwich. But he loved it. He used to eat it every day. He used to take white bread. You know, sandwich, his mother would make, you know, his white bread sandwiches... With peanut butter on them, sliced bananas, and you won't believe it, ketchup. Now, I have never tried, and Schwartz loved it. He'd sit there and eat these things. And, and, and of course, maybe that was the reason his growth was stunted. That, that a lot of, you know, there were a lot of theories around why all the rest of us were bigger than Schwartz. But it could have been no sandwiches now, come to think of it. So Schwartz is eating this peanut butter glop and sitting there, and we're talking away. And uh, it's lunchtime. You know, we're having a great time. We're in the garage with this old guy. That we, you know, we were old friends. We were, we'd been in the garage. We hung around the garage for like two years, and and so at that point, I go upstairs. It's you know, the bell rings. It's it's after lunch now. We've sat in there for about three hours. The bell rings. We go charging up, and I go into my home room. Which we always went into for ten minutes after lunch, before for announcements to stump before the afternoon's classes started in the school I went to. So I go charging her real happy, you know, and I got my note and I run up to Miss Snyder and Miss Snyder didn't even didn't even say a word. She just looked at me and says, "Oh, would you please go see Mr. Rupp?" What the hell is this? She didn't even take the nothing. See, what the... So well, you know, it's obviously a clerical mistake. So I go down to Mr. Rupp's office. Yeah, I figured that. Uh, and it's just one of those things that get straightened out. And I walk in. And Rupp is sitting there. Hand it over, please. He says, He says, the note that Mr. Stanford watched you write. It's Mr. Stanford. Who's it? He says, Mr. Stanford of the garage. The Fink. The Fink. He had called Miss Snyder. And I was sitting in the in the office here. My I could just feel my face is white, you know. And the door opens, and who walked in? Yes, sirree. That was another three-day sentence in the slam. Boy, did hell break out loose that time. And the old man again says, "You stupid! You wrote a
2: note in the garage at a school."
1: That's what but I mean, he can understand writing a note to get out of school, but writing in the garage, he, he, he was always saying, what kind of a stupid kid did he given birth to? What
2: kind of stupid he created?
1: Remember sitting there, you know, and he, he got so furious, you know, he spilled his beer and everything else. He's mad. He says, you wrote a note in the... Oh, look what you made me do. I spilled my beer! Please,
3: please, if you will. Speaking hey, I guess who was in here yesterday? Wally Stumble. You know, little fella runs the grocery store on the corner. Well, Wally drops in for his regular Valentine beer, and you know what? Seems his amnesia's come back again. Connery says, it's bad this time. Real bad. I've forgotten how to make change. Can't seem to remember anything. And I say, Wally, Ben, it's not as bad as you think, and I'm gonna prove it to you. I'm gonna describe a familiar object, and you're gonna tell me what it is, okay? Now, What's terrifically refreshing, has three rings on the label, and is chock full of purity, body, and flavor. Well, a Wally thinks about it a while. Don't tell me, he says, I can get this. Finally he says, Connor, it's one of two things. Them little packs of yogurts or some kind of bird. And there he was with a bottle of Valentine beer right there in front of him. So I see, Wally, that's close enough. Looks to me like you're coming out of it. Some world, huh? Yeah. Let me get you another Ballantine. On the
1: house. Yeah, Valentine Bach beer is now available at the Falstaff Brewing Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, and other cities. Yes. What? You mean once again the horn blows at midnight? You know what I turn into when that bugle goes, don't you? Oh my God, please, and before your very eyes. <laughs> Well I'll tell you this i i uh, I'm sorry I had to uh, I'm sorry I had to uh, not finish the story about the embarrassing moment I cannot tell you now except to say it involved that damn swan and a butterfinger candy bar that caused the two of us to have one of the most embarrassing moments I have ever had in public and I will not pursue the story in here. The swan that lived in the lobby of the Oriental Theater amid all the uh, spearmint gum wrappers. Wrigley's Spearmint Gum. And you don't want to hear the rest of it because this story, ha- if it's going to be told, it has to be told with full embellishment. Suffice it to say, kids, the swan is among, is among the meanest of creatures known to God's great, great world of fauna. I can say nothing good about swans. And I might point out before that night, I kind of dug Butterfinger candy bars. That night I swore off them for life, haven't had one since. I gave up Butterfinger candy bars and swans. I might also add double dates as a result of that night. Now I travel a lonely path. Yes sir. I do not double date. No hanky panky with swans. And if there's any candy bars involved at all, it may be an occasional powerhouse bar. <laughs> How long has it been since you've seen a powerhouse candy bar? Boy, that was a tooth rotter. Look it that big. Uh, this is a uh, molar rotter, is better. This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for Lester Smith on the news.
0: This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR Newsroom. The field is wide open once again. The New York mayoral candidates, former Mayor Robert Wagner, is definitely out of the race. Wagner who served three terms in City Hall rang down the final curtain on the speculation as to his mayoral ambitions today by emphatically turning down the Liberal Party nomination for mayor and declaring that after a review of personal, political, and civic considerations he would not seek the office under any circumstances. Wagner said that among the factors he had considered was the possible adverse effect that his race could have had on the candidacy of his own son, Robert Jr., who was seeking the Democratic nomination for Manhattan city councilman at large. And the ex-mayor added, The other major consideration and the most persuasive was my finding that I just don't have the kind of overriding desire needed for this office. The Liberal Party, in a statement released soon after Wagner's announcement, said that it regretted that a man so highly qualified chose not to run And the statement continued, We will immediately start looking for a candidate that we think can unite the good government forces in New York City. The Liberal Party committee meets tomorrow night to begin that very task. Governor Rockefeller, who failed in his attempt to promote Wagner as the Republican-Liberal fusion candidate, issued a brief statement also regretting the ex-mayor's decision, but, said Rockefeller, I understand his reasons as matters have developed for his not wishing to run for mayor. My single and continuing concern, said Rockefeller, remains good government for New York City. I shall await developments. In Washington, a federal judge has ordered at least a temporary halt to the dismantling of the Office of Economic Opportunity by the Nixon administration. United States District Judge William Jones ruled that the president has no power to shut down programs enacted by the Congress. Supporters of the anti-poverty agency say, however, that the court ruling has come too late that OEO has already been effectively dismantled by the administration. This, from WOR's Washington correspondent, Clifford Evans.
2: Now for a reaction to the decision by the federal court judge, Harlem's congressman, Charles Rangel. The courts have ruled what the Congress always knew, and that is the president acted illegally, unconstitutionally, in dismantling OEO without coming before the Congress. Now, are you saying this as a Democratic congressman or as a former United States attorney? I'm speaking as a lawyer and a lawmaker, and this idea is shared uh, by many Republicans. There are many Republicans that are against the OEO program but believe that it's the Congress that should eliminate it rather than the executive branch of government. The tragic thing about it is when powerless people are dealing with a powerful administration, you may win the court case and lose the battle.
0: And we'll have more news after this. Are you living where your children have fresh air, safe parks, playgrounds, easy walking to kindergarten, elementary school, high school, college, library, social and religious centers. A dream for the rich. No, it's modern Ivy Hill Park Apartments. 45 bus minutes from Times Square Port Authority. One bedroom from $140, two bedrooms from $170. Free gas and electricity. Fireproof, owner managed. Shopping cart marketing, bus service, parking.